Hey, how's it going? I wanted to uh, make this video to present this idea because this week I've been kind of doing a bunch of uh, reading about developmental psychology and how it relates with, well, how it relates with existentialism specifically. And I wanted to share this idea that there's this interesting research by a guy named uh, Paul Wong looking at how existential psychology and positive psychology intersect. And I want to share this because I think it has a lot of relevance for the time we're in, and I just think it might be an interesting thing to uh, to look at. And this is so again, existential is a complicated sounding word, but if you really think about it, is within that word is the word exist, and it's really about these deep philosophical questions associated with the fact that associated with things like death and dying and the experience of loss and the experience of pain and suffering and mortality and what even is the meaning of things and what's the purpose and how do we construct a meaningful vision of ourselves and our and who we're trying to be and all these like really deep existential level questions right so existential psychology is greatly predated by existential philosophy and existential philosophy is philosophy dealing with those same types of questions it's going to outline a bunch of them below Right. So I wanted to share this because I thought that this was a really interesting take on it, because if you look at positive psychology, is this idea that human psychology is about more than just or psychology is about more than just healing people that are experiencing pain, although that's a core piece of it. It's about helping people reach into higher levels of functioning and experience and mental health. And, you know, Maslow would say self-actualization. Frank would say self-transcendence to reach self-actualization, but all these kind of higher psychological goals. Okay, so this title is called Existential Positive Psychology by Paul Wong, 2015. Existential psychology is about human existence and the human drama of survival and flourishing. It is inherently positive because it emphasizes the courage and responsibility of confronting existential anxieties, like all those anxieties around purpose and death and meaning and so it involves the responsibility of confronting that and living an authentic life. Unfortunately, the popular existential literature tends to focus on the darker side of the human condition. Existential psychology can learn from positive psychology's scientific method and from its focus on the positive. Positive psychology has now come full circle to its existential roots. Positive psychology is extrinsically existential. So that sentence is, what that sentence means is like, due to positive psychology's focus on this generative developmental belief in people's ability to heal and transcend to higher levels of experience that because of that focus, it almost is forced to deal with these existential questions of meaning and value and what would be a good life if you could live it. 
positive psychology is intrinsically existential because it's concerned with such fundamental questions. I could have just read this as what's the good life? What makes life worth living? How can we find happiness? However, these existential questions cannot be fully addressed through just positive psychology research alone without recognizing a people's existential anxieties. A maturing positive psychology needs to return to its existential humanist roots, right? Humanistic roots. So like, again, those philosophical underpinnings to rediscover the richness of lived experience and the many pathways to meaning in life. So it's interesting. So he's going to, in this article, build this, um, you know, if you want to grab a coffee and take a few minutes, I was just thinking this, it's maybe a kind of neat idea. It's like a coffee in an article. Um, so I'm going to read this out. So this is what he's, he's, keeps using abbreviations, but I'll keep saying the full word just so that it doesn't get too uh, confusing here because he's calling it existential positive psychology. And then he says immediately after or positive existential psychology, which is just saying, okay, we're going to combine these two things. And it sort of seems like he's saying like, whichever you call it, you can either call, you can either put the existential or the positive first, right? It's psychology that's combining this existential and this positive approach. So existential positive psychology represents a natural combination, as I was sort of mentioning, between this positive psychology and existential psychology. Basically, existential positive psychology addresses a few fundamental questions about self-identity and the human condition of striving for happiness within the constraints of reality. And so then it has a list of the questions type of questions that are existential. Who am I? What defines me? Who am I when I'm stripped away from me and reduced to only a naked, lonely soul? Is there anything unique and special about me? How can I be happy? Why am I bored? Why am I so dissatisfied with my life? What is a good life? Is this all there is to life? What should I do with my life? How should I live then? What's my calling? What should I devote the rest of my life? How do I make the right choices? How do I know that I'm making the right decisions regarding career or relationships? And how do I tell if I'm wrong? Where do I belong? Why do I feel so alone in this world? And how can I help to develop in uh, deep and meaningful relationships? These are all existential things that are existential questions that we can have existential anxiety about. Where can I find acceptance? Where's my home? What's the point of striving when life is so short? Why should I struggle to survive when life is transient and fragile? What's the point of building something only to see it swallowed up by death? Very deep, tough questions. And you can see how without a constructive approach to engaging these incredibly deep but important questions, people can fall into kind of nihilistic or hopeless interpretations i guess in a way i'm presenting existential positive psychology as a rebuttal to nihilism all these questions are related to the human process that was my comment not the article all these questions are related to the human processes of making sense and finding a purpose or reason for existence it's the spirit of asking tough questions and rejecting prepackaged answers, easy answers that characterizes existential psychology. 
existential positive psychology is open to insights, wisdom, and facts of life from all sources, regardless of the paradigm of knowledge claims, thus providing a richer research agenda. It's willing to, it's not, it's going outside the box. In short, existential positive psychology broadens the definition of positive psychology as the study of the ultimate concerns through integrating both positive and negative aspects of the human condition in order to create a better future for self and others. What qualifies existential positive psychology as positive psychology, why it fits, is this emphasis on the human capacity for positive change and growth. Yalom has already, so there he is making reference to Irvin Yalom, who's a big name in, uh, in group psychology, especially group therapy, group therapy. Yalom has already identified four existential anxieties, death, freedom, isolation, and meaninglessness. How we confront and resolve these existential givens is related to the courage and creativity we can muster. I've just added two more existential questions related to identity and happiness. So this is, I'm reading Paul Wong's words. These six issues are the recurrent themes of human existence, even though they may remain unconscious or latent in some individuals. Think about that sentence. He's basically saying these, this is common to human beings, even if you're unconscious of it or it's not showing in your life, it's latent. That doesn't mean it's not there. Subtitle, from identity crisis to the quest for authenticity. Identity crisis is not limited to adolescence. It can be an ongoing struggle to define and redefine ourselves when we go through major life transitions or upheavals. The search for identity requires self-knowledge. The ancient Delphic injunction carved into the lintel at the temple of Apollo, know thyself, still resonates with the postmodern generation. Without a clear sense of self-knowledge, we can go through life without ever knowing who we are and what we really want in life. The discomfort of identity crisis is necessary for initiating the quest for authenticity. However, defense mechanisms often keep anxiety, identity anxiety at bay, and the social pressure of conformity and enculturation provides an easy escape for this existential quest. The dehumanization of a, comp of a competitive capitalistic society further narrows people's vision to material gains, and as a result, people are confused about their true identity in the larger scheme of things. Thus, the quest for authenticity remains a challenging and poignant task in a consumer culture. Authenticity has been a recurrent theme in the existential literature. Heidegger, again, if you're going to get into existential um, philosophy, I actually shouldn't say again because I haven't mentioned this yet. Um, Martin Heidegger is a, a, a giant in that field. Very complicated intellectual, but a very interesting person, huge in the uh, field of phenomenology. Heidegger differentiates between the non-authentic and the authentic mode of living. The non-authentic people give up their individuality and responsibility for the security of being part of a herd. In contrast, the authentic people assume responsibility to live in a way that is consistent with their true nature and core values. They strive to become what they were made to be in spite of the anxiety and the risks involved. There is no shortcuts to authenticity. Test scores on personality, vocational interest, and signature strengths can be helpful, but there's no passion in cold numbers, no inspiration in formulas. The process of authentication often begins with a moment of awakening, a deepening of conviction about core values, 
a felt sense of one's true identity. It's the discovery of an inner vision about one's uniqueness and singularity that endows life with deeper meaning. Awesome sentence. But this is just the start. The pathway to authenticity, the pathway to authenticity entails, entails risk, includes risks and setbacks and suffering, especially when it's contrary to the social norms. In many instances, the quest for authenticity means persecution or death because those who dared to march to a different drum and challenge the status quo are likely to be maligned, marginalized, and even martyred. Thus, the quest for authenticity and meaning is not always compatible with the pursuit of happiness and the good life. To live an authentic and meaningful life means one cannot deny one's true nature and, even, and calling, even if it means death. Jesus is a case in point. So is Socrates. That's a strong way to end that paragraph. Both, both killed for what they said and for their unwillingness to take back what they said. From an existential perspective, authentic happiness flows from the authentic mode of living. Quoting Camus' rhetorical question, but what is happiness except the simple harmony between a man and the life he leads? Right? And Camus gets to the heart of happiness when he equates it with harmony of living. According to Schumacher, the person that was quoting him this harmony can be achieved not only by doing what one is best at by all, but also by living like human beings who need social connection and spirituality subtitle from the crisis of disconnect to the quest for happiness at the heart of our quest for happiness is some kind of discontent with life as it is this is more than a cultural phenomena it may be related to human tendency towards personal growth. For those who are already enjoying swimming in the stream of life, the question, am I happy, may not even arise. But even in the, brief, in, even in the best of circumstances, there's always something nagging about whether this is all there is to life and whether something better may be laying beyond the horizon. The tension between contentment and discontentment constitutes a familiar existential crisis with the total contentment with to, sorry, while total contentment means optimal life satisfaction, while total contentment means optimal life satisfaction, it may also spell entropy and death because there is nothing more to strive for. Existential positive psychology does not endorse the idea of maximizing happiness or optimizing life satisfaction because such, goal is, such a goal is unrealistic and contrary to our best interests as human beings. Discontentment is a double-edged sword. It automatically distracts from life satisfaction, but also provides an opportunity for personal growth and social reform. Dissatisfaction with what dissatisfaction with where we are motivates us to advance to where we want to be. Existential positive psychology recognizes that discontentment is an essential part of human nature, but distinguishes healthy and unhealthy discontent. Personal greed and blind ambition represent the destructive type, while striving for higher values and greater virtues represents the healthy types of discontentment. Getting there. At present, the happiness craze is sweeping across Western society. Schumacher laments that many psychologists and coaches have 
become merchants of happiness, promising people the moon and instant transformation, success and happiness. They mass market their happiness prescription like any other feel good product produce, uh, like any other feel good commercial product. Existential psychologists would feel very uncomfortable with such a commercialization of happiness. They agree with Frankel that the single minded pursuit of happiness has the opposite effect of driving it away. But happiness comes through the back door as a byproduct when we pursue meaning and authenticity. So here's where we get into existentialism. Existential philosophers and psychologists have long discovered that authentic happiness arises from embracing suffering as the essence of the human condition. They see life as a series of paradoxes. Two truths that seem to contradict. but They see life as a series of paradoxes, predicaments, and problems Life is also full of striving, sense-making, and victories. The dynamic interplay between dualities is one of the hallmarks of existential positive psychology. Wang's duality, duality hypothesis states that positives cannot exist apart from negatives and that authentic happiness grows from pain and suffering. Right, like Camus said, is insight from 1968 that there's no joy without despair or Rollo May. Nice that they quote him. His observation that the ultimate paradox is the negation becomes affirmation. That's an interesting one to take mid sentence when I'm reading in a video. Rolomay's observation that the ultimate paradox is that negation becomes affirmation. Rolomay, an existential psychologist. Again, it's like if I could quickly neatly describe that it wouldn't be a Rollo May quote, but that's interesting that to negate means to affirm. You can see the yin yang idea in that the it's a very kind of Eastern uh, Chinese philosophy style idea, Taoist idea. Many people are awashed with information and images of happiness yet still drowning in a sea of misery. The reason for this paradox is that they fail to avoid suffering, sugarcoat negative emotions and seek an expressway to a Disneyland type of happiness. Such superficial happiness may actually prevent them from personal growth and make them vulnerable to depression. In contrast, existential positive psychology advocates the following three types of mature happiness. A, authentic happiness, which flows from being an authentic person. B, eudomic or, or um, eudomic happiness, which comes from doing virtuous deeds. You sometimes hear people talk about eudomic happiness in like uh, religious context and cherionic happiness which arises from our spiritual side and interesting that he uses the word spiritual nature in the classes we talk so much about this nature nurture so like this is actually really interesting because there's three kind of types of mature happiness that there's a certain type of mature happiness that comes from being your true self that there's a, a certain type of mature happiness that comes from doing meaningful work 
So Edomic means it's a connection to a Greek concept. And then Cherionic happiness, which I can't say I've seen that word before, except it explains it right below there, I see, is coming from spiritual happiness. Cherionic comes from the Greek root denoting a spiritual gift. It's a kind of spiritual blessing or gift of happiness that is bestowed upon us independent of our circumstance. The calm joy of Zen monks or the ecstasy of Christian mystics has in brackets, think St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. Oh yeah. Who like talk to animals and very interesting person to look up are examples of cherionic happiness. Let me finish this up. Hope you're enjoying this. If you're still watching this deep, you're probably liking it. We should take a quick hot water break. Okay. From meaninglessness, anxiety, to the quest for meaning and purpose. The most enduring question in philosophy, religion, and psychology is regarding the meaning of life. At some point in life, whether it's a personal encounter with death, a sudden reversal of fortune, a tragic event, a major crossroad, a disillusion with the emptiness of success, or simply feelings of boredom, COVID-19, the existential questions of meaning will be triggered. Since we only go through this life once, we have reason to wonder how to make the most of it. The worst fear is not death, but the discovery that we've never really lived when the time comes for us to die. We all have the urge to to desire to live fully, to do something significant, to make a difference so that we don't have to dread the deathbed realization that we've squandered away our precious life. Therefore, we dread a meaningless life as much as we dread the terror of death. Meaninglessness may be the most pervasive existential anxiety that negatively impacts every aspect of our life. Paul Tilch, it's interesting. This person's referencing really interesting people thinks that meaninglessness anxiety is about the loss of ultimate concern, which leads to the, qu- the questioning of the meaning of one's existence and everything one does. Frankel emphasizes that the existential vacuum or meaninglessness is responsible for many of the mental and social problems. While a clear sense of meaning and purpose is the key to positive mental health. Therefore, one of the major concerns of existential positive psychology is to focus on the quest for meaning and purpose. Frankel has identified three values of meaningful living. Number one, creative values. We give of ourselves to the world through creative efforts. Number two, experiential value. Right? Sometimes like the experience of love or beauty or children or we receive something from the world, such as love and beauty. And then three, attitudinal values that we adopt a positive attitude towards negative situations beyond our control. These three values cover the whole spectrum of our experience of meaning. Wong, Paul Wong, the author of this, has discovered seven major sources of meaning. It's interesting how he self-references there, but Achievement, acceptance, relationship, intimacy, religion, self-transcendence, fairness. Okay, so his research has showed seven main sources of meaning. That's interesting. 
what those breakdowns are. So your achievements in life, your acceptance level, it'd be interesting to see how he measures all of these. Relationship quality, which seems obvious, or not obvious, but central. Level of intimacy, your religious understanding, or, or that another one that would be interesting to see how he scales that, and self-transcendence and fairness. Do implicit theory methodology. Subsequent cross-cultural uh, cross research has found that these sources of meaning are important to several Asian countries as well. And I'd already kind of mentioned that this, my PhD was related to um, Chinese philosophical tradition of Taoism. And I see that all throughout this. The connection between Taoism and existential psychology is deep. And, you know, the easiest example is right there on the screen with Viktor Frankl. It's not a lot of work to view Frankl as a Taoist, even though he wouldn't, I don't think, have identified with that, although he would have definitely read that stuff. So Wong developed this, what he called the PURE model, P-U-R-E, P-U-R-E acronym, as a framework for individuals to discover and create meaning in their lives. This is basically a self-regulatory model. So think about that. We've talked in the courses a lot about this idea of self-regulation or being able to control your own thoughts and emotions and stress and stuff like that. This is basically a self-regulatory model which allows trial and error and constant adjustment to align action to one's core values and life calling. The P stands for purpose and life goals. The U stands for understanding the demands of each situation in life as a whole. The R stands for responsible actions and reactions consistent with one's purpose and understanding. And lastly, E represents the constant need for evaluation to ensure authenticity and efficiency, efficacy. I'll read E again because I kind of messed that up. E represents the constant need for evaluation. Yeah, so that's interesting to make sure you're being authentic and, and that your stuff has efficacy, that it's actually measuring and, and you're actually measuring improvement correctly. The pure model has been effectively applied to counseling and coaching. It's this last concept that how do we move it? And this is so relevant right now. In some ways, it's one of our biggest challenges as a society, how do we move from isolation anxiety to the quest for community? Right, and so it's interesting because this was written in 2015, so obviously way before COVID. It's a whole other dimension now. We're all born into this world alone and we'll leave this world alone. Our attachment to others is at best impermanent because people do change and they do leave us through separation and death. Displacement and alienation is an impersonal or displacement and alienation in an impersonal and competitive world will only further increase our sense of isolation and loneliness. The unraveling of social institutions such as the family and community is contrary to human nature because we're wired for relationships and we're meant to be social animals. Existential positive psychology emphasizes the need for building authentic relationships and for belonging to a supportive community community. Oh, they, okay. So Martin Buber, really interesting uh, philosopher. I have, yeah. 
so it says here, Bruber's uh, model of the I vow existential encounter represents one of the promising ways to open up authenticity and build bridges across the abyss that separates us. That's an awesome sentence. So his book, I Thou, is about this, like, how do we deal with this fact that, well, we've talked about this before, that I have my own subjective experience. It feels like the world's sort of a movie through my eyes, but that everyone else does. And what's this relationship between I and you or I and thou? The Chinese value of emphasizing relationships and all kinds of interactions is another way to overcome alienation and loneliness. Community is a powerful antidote to isolation anxiety. There's a deep-seated longing in human nature to belong to a place where we all can call home, a safe and supportive place where we are accepted as a significant member. This place can be a family, a church, an organization, a neighborhood, a psychology class. This is where we can learn to care for each other and grant each other grace. This is where we can learn how to live and work together by placing group interest above egoistic desire. However, community is a fragile ecosystem which can be easily disrupted by selfish or inconsiderate acts. It takes an empathy, kindness, tolerance, and self-sacrifice to build a positive community. A collectivist orientation is needed to balance our individualist tendencies. Uh, at a small scale, we're talking about community building. Um, we're not talking like communism here. We're talking about the development of healthy small groups and that this community building involves, you know, civil virtue and social activism and collecting collective coping. Right? Collective coping is an interesting way of saying it, but, you know, we have a lot of healing to do as a society after all of this. Once we can achieve a genuine community, our individual lives will be enriched in proportion to the vitality and harmony of the group. Here's the final caveat. Even when we've established an intimate network of social support and derived a great deal of satisfaction from it, we remain solitary beings. Existential positive psychology accepts isolation anxiety as an existential given, but recognizes that it is through our loneliness that we seek community and intimacy as a major source of personal meaning. Personal meaning. Oh, 75% through. Just going to finish up with these last two points. So the, the list of people referenced in this are, are quite interesting. They keep coming back to Frankel, um, understandably, but then they've touched on like Tilch and Martin Buber. Those would be interesting people to follow up on too. So freedom anxiety to the quest for responsibility. That's the next subtitle that freedom poses a problem for people. On the one hand, too much freedom can be overwhelming. On the other hand, too little freedom can lead to despair and fatalism. However, even in the Nazi concentration camps, and Frankel was in Auschwitz, Frankel maintains that one can still maintain attitudinal freedom by taking a heroic and defiant stance. Freedom implies responsibility because we're responsible for the consequences of the choice we've made according to our own accord. 
Fear of responsibility drives us to escape from freedom, while denial of responsibility drives us to abuse our freedom. There are also problems associated with assuming too much responsibility because this may either crush us with too much work or paralyze us with too many worries. Existential positive psychology is concerned with how to strike a healthy balance between freedom and responsibility. In the Western world, there's too much emphasis on freedom, but not enough on responsibility. Frankel's repeatedly warned that freedom without responsibility leads to chaos and anarchy. Frankel just dropping truth like crazy. He's got some of the best points. He points out that conformity, fatalism, and collectivism can all seduce us to avoid personal responsibility and that blind allegiance to any organization or ideology requires us to suspend our critical faculties and to undermine our authenticity. Death anxiety poses a new subtitle from death anxiety to the quest for acceptance and self-transcendence. And I think this is the last piece. Death anxiety poses a problem for contemporary American positive psychology because it falls outside the parameters of positive traits, positive experiences, and positive organizations. So that's an interesting point. So uh, Martin Sleekman's model of positive psychology is sort of focused on this triangle of what we consider positive psychological traits, positive psychological experiences, and positive psychological organizations or way we can organize community. And what Wong is saying in this article is that death anxiety is something that positive psychology could be helpful with, but doesn't really fit into anywhere here. And this is where he's saying this is one of the potential benefits of adding this existential element to a model of positive psychology, this EPP or what, what he's calling existential positive psychology. For this expanded model, death anxiety constitutes an impetus to personal growth and spiritual growth. Death is, only, death is the only certainty of all living organisms. However, human beings alone are burdened with the cognitive capacity to be aware of our own mortality and to fear what may follow afterwards. It's interesting. I don't know if that's 100% true because I don't know. This tweaked me in to go on a huge off-topic rant, but I'm pretty sure dolphins understand they're mortal. Okay. Anyways, it doesn't take away from what he's trying to say. Furthermore, their capacity to reflect on the meaning of life and death creates this additional existential anxiety for human beings. The inevitability of death makes its presence felt in Every area of human exists, every arena of human existence, how we react to the prospect of personal death will have an impact on how we live and the meanings we attach to the death have important implications to our well-being. In the past 40 years, the psychology of death has been dominated by this concept of death anxiety. However, in recent years, Wong and his associates have emphasized the existential quest for death acceptance. They've developed the death attitude profile. Okay, so that's all capitalized. So this is like actually a scale, like a index inventory psychometric, which identifies three distinct types of death acceptance. So people would take some kind of survey or scoring and fall into one of these categories generally. Number A, or the first, there's three. A, uh, neutral death acceptance means facing death, death rationally as an inevitable part of every biological life and attempting to make 
most of the present life through creative works. B is approaching acceptance as rooted in transpersonal religious beliefs. So that's kind of interesting that one way people can reduce death anxiety. So it's kind of the, how religion touches this. An interesting point from another presentation I recently did was this idea that the literature on this is actually really interesting because if you look at how much fear people have approaching the end of life and how it relates to how religious they are, it's actually the people that are the most religious and the least religious that fear death the least. And it's the people that are uncertain that tend to fear it the most. Now, again, assuming all the things are equal and using just religious religiosity as the variable. And then the other one is escape acceptance, meaning considering death is a better alternative to a painful existence. Life and death are two sides of the same coin. There's no life without death and there's no death without life. Wong's meaning management theory. So I guess uh, Dr. Paul Wong has another idea called MMT, meaning management theory, recognizes that death anxiety can have either a negative or a positive impact depending on how one, depending on how one reacts to it. We can never escape the reality of death. But we can always use our capacity for meaning, spirituality, and narrative construction to transform death anxiety. That's a really important sentence. I'm going to read that again. We can never escape from the reality of death, but we can always use our capacity for meaning, spirituality, and narrative construction to transform death anxiety. If we regard death as a reminder of our own mortality and the need to live Authentic, authentically, then death anxiety will not only facilitate deep death acceptance. So then death anxiety will not only help us with death acceptance, but also encourage self-actualization and self-transcendence. Paradoxically, we need to confront and embrace death in order to live meaningfully and vitally. In some, an existential perspective as presented above can both broaden and enrich positive psychology research as I've elaborated in Positive Psychology 2.0. That must be a book that he wrote. The main message is that people not only need to confront these negative existential givens, but that they can grow as a result of such encounters. Properly understood, existential psychology is about the human drama of courage, creativity, celebration, and faith in the midst of suffering and death. Existential positive psychology is intended for all people, especially the suffering masses, with its emphasis on integrating negative experience with experiences with positive ones. Existential positive psychology highlights the painful human strivings which Western society consumer culture wants us to ignore. Existential positivist psychology, or existential, well, it's interesting I accidentally said that, but existential positive psychology, stress, which is more positivist than most psychologies, stresses that it's, um, anyways, I'm complicating that. That'd be an interesting comparison to try to compare Viktor Frankl with like Karl Popper or someone like that, like a real positivist. Anyways, and that's getting off point right during the final paragraph. So let me sidestep back to the beginning of this paragraph. Existential positive psychology is intended for all people, 
especially the suffering masses, with its emphasis on integrating negative experiences with positive ones. Existential positive psychology highlights the painful human strivings which Western society consumer culture wants us to ignore. It stresses that it's not only through struggle and fortitude. It stresses, sorry, let me start that sentence again. It stresses that it is only through struggle and fortitude that we grow psychologically and spiritually. It is through embracing life in its totality and wrestling with the ultimate concerns that we can uplift humanity and improve the human condition. A complete positive psychology needs to be based on the totality of human experiences. Have a good day. I hope you found that interesting. Again, I think just something to think on. Have a great day. Thanks for watching.